Well, welcome to King's Cross Church. Again, it's so good to be with you all. If we haven't met, my name's Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here. Last Sunday, I was home with sick kids, and uh, we had our friend Michael Kelly here preaching. Michael is an elder at Grace Community Church, which is our sending church. Fortunately, he was already planning on being here to preach, uh, so it wasn't a last-minute type of situation. But uh, a big thank you to Michael, who preached I really gave him a difficult passage, and he handled it very well. So it's always a good plan whenever a really difficult challenge passage is coming up to assign a guest preacher to come and preach it for you. Uh, but we're so grateful for Grace and our ongoing relationship with them. I'm actually going to be there tonight with other church planters who have come from Grace to just share about how things are going at, uh, at King's Cross. Uh, this morning, we're picking up where Michael left off in Galatians 5. We'll be in verses 1 through 6. So turn there with me in your Bibles. Galatians 5. I'll read verses 1 through 6. For freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. We've been in Galatians for several months now, and you'll remember if you've been around that there is this one big, clear, central theme in Galatians, and it is the theme of justification. Uh, early on in Galatians, we really, really hammered this home, and perhaps it's been a few weeks since we've stopped to define justification, or maybe you're, you're new to us this morning. So what is this word? What does it mean? It's a legal term. It refers to the, the declaration of a judge that vindicates somebody, that says they're in the right, they're righteous, they're just, they're innocent, they're not guilty. It's a verdict from the voice from on high. And all of us, every day are seeking that in one form or another. Uh, we're, we're all seeking validation, affirmation, acceptance from the voice from on high. That may look different in different people's lives. If you grew up in a particularly religious context, you might be actively seeking to feel like God affirms you and accepts you and is pleased with you. Some of you, it might be the voice of your spouse, feel like every day I have to please my spouse, I have to make them happy, I have to, to make sure that they're content with me, otherwise I don't feel like I have the acceptance that I need. For some of you, it may be parents. Maybe you grew up with, with really overbearing parents. They, they sent you to the best schools and they, had, you know, they gave you all the resources, but they also had the highest expectations. And so maybe now in college or well on into adult life, you're still working to earn the approval of your mom or your dad. For some of you, it may be your boss. You're, you're very career-focused, and you're trying to climb the ladder, and the person whose voice matters more than anybody else in your life is your boss. For some of you, it may just be sort of society and culture at large. You just want to be on the right side of all the arguments. You want to be in the, on the right side of history. You want to have all the right views and all the right opinions. Whatever we identify in our lives, consciously or unconsciously, as the voice from on high, we all desperately seek affirmation from. That's what Galatians is about. It's about justification. And specifically what we're going to see in this passage is it's about what 
doesn't matter for our justification, what can't accomplish our justification, and what can accomplish our justification. What can't accomplish our justification? That's the first point of the sermon. Verse 4, Paul says, you who are trying to be justified. So he just gets it right out there, says explicitly, some of you are trying to earn your justification. How are they trying to earn it? He says, by the law. The law, he says, is ineffective for justification. Now, what is the law? We have to stop and define another term. The law is, properly speaking, it's, it's God's standard for us. It's the standard by which we are to live, and it's the standard against which we are to be judged. But because we all may have our own sort of version of that voice on high in our lives, the law could look very different in the way that it functions from one person to another. Again, the law for you could like your, look like your moral performance. If you're a really religious person, you may think I have to cross all the T's and dot all the I's and obey all the rules. I have to go to church every week. I have to serve in all these different capacities. The law for you could be politics, always voting for the right people. It could be the behavior of your children. If you're a parent and you desperately seek the approval and praise of other parents, then then it could be the way that your kids act when you're out at lunch or at dinner. It could be your performance at school. Again, you're still trying to make your parents happy. Uh, Recently, I came across a really perfect picture of the way that the law functions for an entire subset of our society in an unexpected place. I was reading an article in The Atlantic, and it was a music review of the latest record by Olivia Rodrigo. Now, this is somebody who, just talking about her, makes me feel old. I wasn't familiar with her. I hadn't listened to any of her music, but I'm reading this review, and it was saying that some of the songs on her latest record are sort of an homage to, like, 90s grunge rock, which is much more in in the vein of what I grew up listening to. And it talks about these bands like Pearl Jam and Beck and Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, her record kind of paying tribute to them. So I've decided, of course, to go and listen to a couple of the songs. And one song in particular said that the opening guitar riff sounds like the Smashing Pumpkins. So I expected to find that, but what I didn't expect to find as I kept listening was this crystal clear description of the way that the law functions for so many people in our world today. Uh, At the risk of making myself sound even older, I'm going to read some of the lyrics of this song. The song is called Pretty Isn't Pretty. And she says, Bought a bunch of makeup trying to cover up my face. I started to skip lunch, stop eating cake on birthdays. I bought a new prescription to try and stay calm because there's always something missing. There's always something in the mirror that I think looks wrong. When pretty isn't pretty enough, what do you do? And everybody's keeping it up, so you think it's you. I could change up my body and change up my face. I could try every lipstick and every shade, but I'd always feel the same because pretty isn't pretty enough anyway. I would recommend that you go listen to that song. It does have some explicit language in it, uh, so be forewarned. But the picture that she describes of young women in particular in our culture who are being crushed under the weight of expectations to look a certain way, and the, the sad thing about the song is there's no redemption to it. It's like, how do you, how do you escape from the pressure to perform according to this particular law, this particular standard that you have to meet that's crushing people. Maybe you can't relate to that, but I'm sure there are other things that you can relate to. Dads in the room uh, with, with kids at home, when you, 
or talking with other dads, friends in your neighborhood or at work or whatever, and you hear about the vacation that they're going to take their, their families on this year. Or you hear about the, the bigger house that they're going to buy or the addition that they're going to do to their house to sort of perfectly house their growing family. And you think in the back of your mind, like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to afford a vacation at all this year. I, th- this is the house that I'm stuck with. I can barely pay my mortgage. Am I, I'm not going to be able to provide the upbringing for my kids that he can provide. Does that make me less of a dad? Does that make me less of a husband? Why am I not earning enough to provide these things? Moms, again, I already alluded to this, but when, when you show up with your kids 15 minutes late, kicking and screaming everywhere you go, and there's that other perfect family sitting there that always seems to be on time, whose kids seem to be perfectly behaved, Are you wondering, like, why can't I be as good of a mom as she is? Why can't my kids be better behaved? Like, there's our single friends in the room. When you look at that other guy and that other woman and think, why are they married and I'm not? What's so much better about them than me? Why are they so much more attractive than I am? The law and justification by the law can look a little bit different for all of us, but that weight is in all of our lives. For the Galatians, it had to do with a very specific temptation to justify themselves by accepting circumcision. Now, let's just say if you're new to the world of the Bible, you might be thinking, what in the world could that possibly have to do with anything? Why are we talking about that this morning? For background, context, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, God enters into a covenant with this man named Abraham, a covenant is a binding relationship, and God makes these promises to him. He says, I'm going to be your God. Your, your offspring are going to be my people. And covenants often came with, with covenant signs or covenant markers that showed who is in the covenant community and who isn't. And they always point to a spiritual reality. So in this case, the, the covenant sign is circumcision, and it's a picture of the, the cutting away of the, the hard heart inside of the human that, that, that cuts away the, heart, the hardness of heart so that the person can respond in sensitivity to God. And so God gave Abraham this covenant marker, this covenant sign, but it was a sign specifically for the old covenant. So when Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospels, he says, I'm establishing a new covenant. It's not just going to be for ethnic Israel. It's not just going to be for the offspring of Abraham, but it's going to be for all people, all nations who simply believe in me. And so the covenant sign of the old covenant, circumcision, is replaced with the covenant sign of baptism. But you had some people among the Galatians who were saying, no, you still have to accept the sign of the old covenant. In order to really and truly become a Christian, you have to become a Jew first. And Acts 15.1 summarizes the argument of these Judaizers, as they were called perfectly. It says, some people came onto the scene saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. They're trying to add to the pure and simple gospel that Paul preached of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Paul responds to him and he says three things in this passage. He says, if you try to secure or complete your salvation by any human work or effort, first, Christ will not benefit you at all. You don't get some of Christ and some of something else. Jesus, as we've said in Galatians, plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So if you, if you add to your salvation by works, Christ will not benefit you at all. Second, you will be alienated, or a better translation would be severed or cut off from Christ. Paul is using a little double entendre there. If you accept circumcision, you will be cut off from Christ. And third, he says, if you accept this, you have fallen from grace. 
circumcision as a, as a symbol of accepting the law, Paul says, does not have the power to accomplish your justification. In fact, it can't accomplish anything. And so, of course, Paul is hammering this home with his audience, and he's anticipating the response of human nature. Have you ever, like when you were a kid, you had siblings was there ever a time when your sibling was getting in trouble for something and your, your parents are kind of disciplining them in front of you and you, you kind of are starting to feel good about yourself and saying, well, I didn't do that. Mom or dad, look at, look at how I was behaving. Paul predicts that, that the Galatians might, response, might respond in this way by boasting in their uncircumcision. Right? They, they start saying, well, we, we're actually the true Christians because look what Paul says about circumcision, and we're not circumcised. We haven't accepted the law, so look how much better we are. But Paul cuts across this too. He says, neither amounts to anything. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision can accomplish your justification. Human nature, the flesh, your own works, obedience to the law of any kind can't do anything to justify you before God. Neither your religion nor your irreligion, neither your your church attendance every week or the fact that you haven't darkened the door of a church in years can do anything to earn your acceptance before God. Neither your Bible knowledge or your lack thereof, neither your your goody two-shoes background or your morally spotty background, none of this can earn you the verdict that you are accepted and affirmed by God and that you belong among his people. And in fact, to live like it does, Paul says, is to take on a heavy, burdensome, enslaving yoke. And you know what Jesus said about yokes? He said, come and and follow me, and I'll give you rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. For some of you, you need to grapple with the reality that this might land as bad news. That, That being told that you can't earn your way into a room uh, maybe you're, you're the person who got perfect grades, you were the teacher's pet, you were the star athlete, you went to the best school, you got the you know, important degree, you're, you've made good money ever since you got out of school. Like You've always been able to sort of walk into a room behind your resume and point to it. You're the, the sort of Paris Geller character from Gilmore Girls, right, who's always adding to your resume. But what happens to her when she's stripped from her resume? She's, she's nothing. She has no identity apart from what she's accomplished, right? And maybe that's you. Have, have, you ever, have you ever been in a room where you've witnessed somebody trying to sort of earn their way behind a set of credentials that just couldn't accomplish anything for them in that particular room? An example of this, I was at B&A one time. We were flying somewhere, and there was a celebrity who lives in Nashville who was like a really big deal in the 90s and a little bit into the early 2000s, but is just not that much of a big deal anymore. And she had been stopped and screened at TSA, and she was not happy about it. And I was just walking by and watching, thinking about the fact that like the movies that she was in in the 90s do not get her a pass from TSA. Like If you have something on your person that, that doesn't get through the gate, it doesn't matter how much you've accomplished in your life. And Paul's saying that's the way your moral performance and your spiritual resume functions with God. Like it just doesn't it doesn't accomplish anything with him or with his people. Some of you need to grapple with that reality, but for others of you, this should come as the best news ever. If you're insecure about your Bible knowledge or your spiritual background or your moral background, if you're the kind of person who's just like I just can't 
get my act together. I, I just keep on messing up in the same way over and over again. Man, this ought to come as the best news ever. Because what Paul is saying, friend, is that God, if all of that stuff changed tomorrow, if you got your act together tomorrow, God would not love you any more than he does today. And conversely, if you walk out of here and make the biggest mistake of your life, God would not love you any less than he does today. Your justification, Paul says, just has nothing to do with that. Then what can accomplish your justification? What does it have to do with? Paul is riffing here on three contrasts that he comes back to in Galatians. One contrast is the one you saw last week in Michael's sermon. It's the contrast between children of the slave and children of the promise. This text, and really most of Galatians, goes back to the second contrast, which is justification by the law versus justification by faith. And the third contrast, which he's really about to pick up, is the flesh versus the spirit. So picture two columns. On the one column, you have slavery, you have the flesh, and you have the law. And in the other, you have the promise, you have faith, and you have the spirit. And Paul is saying that first column is absolutely useless. It can't accomplish you anything. It can't contribute anything to your justification. This is Abraham, as you saw last week, trying to secure the promise in his own power, in the flesh, not relying on the miraculous power of God and instead saying, we'll take this into our own hands. This is the Galatians, if they accept circumcision. And it's you and it's me looking at our spiritual resume and our moral resume to try to earn us something. Paul saying none of it matters, only the promise, only faith, only the spirit. Verse 5 is sort of the perfect summary of what Paul is arguing. He says, We eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. I'm going to rearrange that sentence just a little bit to where I think it is a little more understandable. Paul says, We eagerly await the hope of righteousness through the Spirit, by faith. We eagerly await the hope of righteousness through the Spirit, by faith. Human nature is to eagerly work for righteousness through the flesh, through human nature, by means of the law. Now, righteousness here, it's it's actually the same Greek word as the word for justification, so it means the same thing. So what, what Paul is saying is that human nature is to try to earn our justification in our own power, in our own ability, but what Paul is saying is that the gospel is totally opposite of this. What is the gospel? Three things in this little verse. First, We don't work for righteousness, we wait for it. We don't work for our justification, we wait for it. That's totally passive. And that's utterly upside down from everything that we would expect and from what every other religion in the world, frankly, teaches. There's a picture of this in Exodus 14. God has just uh, delivered his people from slavery And he leads them out into the wilderness, and he leads them up to the brink of the Red Sea, this big body of water. And he tells them to wait there. And as they're waiting, they start to hear the sound of the the biggest army from the biggest global superpower of their day descending upon them. And they turn around, and they're stuck between the Egyptian army on the one hand and the Red Sea on the other hand. And of course, they say, Moses, why'd you bring us out here to kill us? And Moses responds to them, And he says, don't be afraid, stand firm, and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. Moses says, just watch. Don't do anything. 
Just stand here and be quiet and look at God and look at what he's going to do to save you. What are you looking at right now? Are you looking at your own resume? Are you looking at your own successes or your own failures? Or are you just saying, none of that matters. I'm just going to look to God. I'm just going to watch and wait and be quiet. The second thing that Paul says here is that we wait for righteousness by faith. Again, we don't earn it. We don't work for it. It doesn't come by obedience to the law. It comes by our faith in Jesus who perfectly obeyed the law in our place and then took the curse of the law for us by going to the cross. And third, we wait for righteousness by faith through the Spirit. It's not coming through the flesh. It's not coming through our efforts. It's coming through God's Holy Spirit. And you may think that sounds redundant. Didn't you just, I mean, that's kind of the same thing as saying it's by faith, not by works. But the point here is that even the faith through which we receive God's grace is a gift of God. It's through the Spirit that we actually receive the faith by which we are justified. The point is that you and I bring absolutely nothing to the salvation equation except our sin and weakness. You and I bring absolutely nothing to the salvation equation except our sin and weakness. God provides everything else. Martin Luther said in this passage that the article of justification must be sounded in our ears incessantly. Because the frailty of our flesh will not permit us to take hold of it perfectly or to believe it with all our heart. Many, perhaps most of us this morning, intellectually get this. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith, but functionally, it just, it's not operating in our hearts or in our lives. And my encouragement to you with Luther's words is just keep preaching it to yourself. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself every morning. Learn Learn the ways in which this legalism creeps back into your heart and creeps back into your life. Learn how to spot it and preach the gospel to yourself. And remember, as we saw two weeks ago, that the heart of legalism is a view of God that says he doesn't love me and he doesn't want to bless me abundantly. Now, as we, as we close, some of you good students of the Bible are hearing James in the back of your head. You've been in in your discipleship groups, maybe, and you're hearing James saying, what good is it if you say you have faith and don't have works? Can such faith save you? Uh, Faith without works is dead, right? That's what, what James says over and over again. Doesn't this emphasis, you might be wondering, on the spirit, on faith, on the total freedom of our justification, wouldn't that mean that we can just do whatever we want? That we can just live however we want? Wouldn't that kind of promote this, like, spiritual laziness and and moral laxity? If my morality doesn't contribute to my justification after all, then why be moral at all? There's no contradiction between James and Paul. Look at verse 6. Paul says, what matters is faith working through love. Paul's going to spend basically the rest of Galatians, starting in chapter 5, verse 16, talking about what it looks like for faith to work through love. Christian faith is a, is a working faith. We're going to even begin to see this next week. What we have here is not, is not a sort of lazy spirituality, but it's the interplay between two kinds of freedom. You know, there's negative freedom, which is a freedom that we're very well associated with. It's, you know, the freedom from restraint. Nothing telling me what I can or can't do. And Paul, so far in Galatians, has been talking about negative freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from the the oppression of 
the law. But there's, there's also a kind of positive freedom that we almost never think about in our world. It's the freedom to. It's the freedom for. And in the Bible, what we see is that the gospel brings freedom from and freedom for. We're not just freed from the unbearable weight of the law as a means to try and justify ourselves. We're also freed for obedience to the law as a way of loving other people. That's what we're going to see next week and in the weeks to come. And this is, again, Luther commenting on this. He says, love is the instrument of faith. That faith picks up love like a tool and uses it. There's this common line of reasoning that what really matters in, in Christianity and in religion isn't doctrine, it isn't faith, it isn't believing the right things, it's just being a loving person, right? At the heart of it, what, what, what it's really about to be a Christian is to love people. But the problem with that line of thinking is as soon as you adopt that, you've actually gone back into justification by works. Because how do I know when I'm loving enough? How do I know when I've loved enough people? How do I know when I've loved them enough? How do I know when I've shown my love enough by my works? As soon as we boil it down to that, we're back to justification by works. But what Christianity says, what the gospel says, is that it's actually only through faith that we even can truly love. Luther goes on, he says, love is the instrument of faith. An instrument has its force, its motion, its action, not from itself, but from the workman, the operator, the agent. For who would say the axe gives power to the carpenter or the ship gives power to its sailor? In the same way, he says, love doesn't give power to faith. Faith gives power to love. You're probably familiar with the uh, old tale of King Arthur and his sword, Excalibur. Uh, I remember watching The Sword and the Stone when I was a kid. I don't know if any of you all watched that movie. Uh, but the, the tale is that there's this sword that's stuck in, a, in an anvil on a stone. And as, the, as Merlin, the magician, told it, whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is right wise king born of all England. He's saying the only person who can pull this sword out is the person who is the heir to the throne of England. And so all the noblemen and all the soldiers and all the, all the people come to see who can pull the sword out, who can be the next king of England. And this teenage kid, Arthur, is walking by, and at first he accidentally takes the stone out, and when he, or takes the sword out, and when he realizes that it's an important thing, he puts it back in and he tries to hide, and then he sees what's going on, and he says, well, I, I can pull the sword out. And this kid proves himself to be the unexpected king of England, and he gets this sword, Excalibur, and it, of course it has these special powers. It can cut straight through armor. Its gleam is so bright that it can blind people. Love is, so to speak, the sword of the Christian life. And Jesus is actually the, the only proper heir to it. <laughs> because Jesus is himself love. He is the one that can pull it from the stone and wield it properly. But when we have faith in Jesus, what happens is we're not just forgiven of our sins, but we're actually united to Christ. So that what becomes true of him becomes true of us. And now we can, through faith, work our lives out in love like Jesus did. When, through faith, we are united to Christ, we will truly become loving. For as Luther said, again, he believeth not truly if works of love follow not his faith. Our works of love can do nothing to secure our justification, but our justification will secure our works of love. And our hope and our prayer is that as it does, we would be not only people of faith, but we would be known as people of love.